Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where top industry leaders from around the world share their secrets on how they did it and got to where they are today. With them, we discuss applications of machine learning and AI. We talk about data analytics strategy, leadership, team building, stakeholder management, and much, much more. The podcast is designed to help you get to the next level in your career. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. I hope that you are having a wonderful, wonderful week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we are speaking with Tony Olson. He is the founder of two very different businesses and has had an amazing path to get to where he is now. One of his roles is a managing partner at AlphaZeta. AlphaZeta is a global consulting company made of independent analytics experts. He tells us more about that. Tony is also the chief analytics officer at Vault Bank, which is one of the neobanks in Australia. And Vault Bank recently got their banking license, which was the first issued in over 30 years in Australia. He tells us about how the bank was formed, started, and got to where it is now. Tony has a surprising and amazing journey where he's mixed his love for data with his love for travel and has been in many countries doing a very interesting work. I hope you enjoy his journey. If you do, please share the episode with others. That would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Here is the interview with Tony. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Tony. Tony, thank you so much for making the time. Been looking forward to speaking with you for a while. This is great to get to sit with you. How are you? Very good. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. At the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did it all start for you? How did you get started in the data space? Was there a particular interest or project or application that pulled you into the space? How did that interest or that love spark for you? Yeah, that's a, a great question. When I finished my degree, I went and traveled for a couple of years throughout Asia, India, and then eventually around Europe. And my idea then was that actually you could get by without having to have a job, without having to work, just on if you put the right thing back into society, there'd be enough carry that you could keep going for a while. It turned out that actually money is a very important thing. It's very difficult to live without money. So after a while, uh, that dream came to an end and I needed to go back and get a job. I love a dream, though. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it worked for a while. So. And then I ended up back in Australia, in Sydney, and I was looking around for a job. I have a marketing degree, yeah. in a commerce marketing degree. So the plum jobs were Unilever and these sorts of uh, large marketing organizations, consumer packaged goods. And the banks then were just starting to get into marketing and what they could do around that space. So being away for so long, it was difficult for me to get a job, but I was very lucky to get one with a bank which was a least popular option back then. And I started in through that. So I was lucky to get a job with St. George. And as it turned out, St. George was one of the very first people to get into using their data properly. One of the first data warehouses built was at St. George. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time and fell madly in love with the potential and what it could do. Amazing. <laughs> so you were in there as the organization was expanding into the space, maturing, building the first warehouse, all that sort of at the, at the dawn of, yeah, at the at the very early stages of, of so it's in the uh, we're talking the early nineties now. I still remember that um, the data warehouse at St George was five hundred gig and it was a five wow. million dollar machine. Yeah, incredible, right? Incredible. <laughs> but that was big enough, and that it was the biggest we could get, right? So fabulous stuff. Amazing, amazing. Mm. And what has your journey looked like since then until now? 
I never lost the love of travel. So after St George, I got very lucky at St George. The program went very well. We were able to do an amazing amount internally with the culture and use uh, data and analytics for the customers in a great way. I was lucky enough to be a finalist in the Young Business Person of the Year off the back of all of that. Um, and then after that, I never lost the love of travel. So I went to the UK and got a job over there and then worked on various projects around the world, some time in Japan, some time in the US. And then I ended up living in Beijing. And this is just as China was getting into data and analytics and did a whole lot of projects in China as well. And then eventually I moved to Singapore, spent the last period of time in Singapore, and I currently split my time half-half between Sydney and Singapore. That's incredible. Obviously, yeah, the love of travel is... Travel and data. Exactly. Combining the two. Yeah, and you weave both into your life so well. Yeah. When I was just traveling around without, there's a funny thing, you, you kind of need to have a purpose, right? You need Every day you need to wake up to something and analytics and data has given me that ability to, you know, you've got a passion that you're into and you can go around the world with this and travel and, and do different projects. So it worked out perfectly. I was very, very lucky. Wow. Hmm. And as you're working in all the different countries, did you see that they were at different stages of their data maturity or analytical adoption did you see differences that surprised you between the different countries? Yeah, I think the one that was most interesting was China. And today we, we all know China has amazing talent in this space, far superior to myself. And we all learn a lot from what comes out of China these days. And I think there was a lot of differences in the early stages of when they started to get into analytics. There was a couple of really noticeable things. So one of the projects that, uh, the first projects there was working with the post office and the postmaster general himself was probably the most important person I've ever met in my life. He had 1 million direct employees that worked for him, which is a lot, right? And they did everything from deliver all the the posting communications in China, including some of it was done by uh, donkeys up in the mountains in the far edges of China. The job was to build a name and address database for China, including helping the post office digitize a Chinese address. And Chinese villages and things are very different. And I think the distinctive thing for me of the way in which the China teams went about it, the first thing was the postmaster general himself knew that this was an important thing for the development of the post office and the country. And he would sit with the project team, a guy like that with a million people reporting to him. He would sit on the floor with the project team. He would regularly take them to lunch and he wanted to let everybody know this was an important thing worthy of people's time. It's a fantastic way of changing the culture. You can imagine the warp speed that China was about to go through, right? And I thought that that stood out. The second thing in the Chinese experience is the quality of the people that went into that industry. Jobs in IT were at the top of the desirability. So you got the top people out of Peking, you and, and the schools around the country were the early people jumping into this space. Whereas in other parts of the world, there were more glamorous professions, to be frank. In, in those days, there were a doctor, a lawyer, uh, these sorts of things were the top or maybe a financial trader in the markets. Data and analytics wasn't very glamorous. Yeah. But they, from a very early stage, had the most beautifully talented people on these programs because it was a desirable thing. It was part of modernization and and technology, and so it was lovely. And I think that built a foundation for China because they had this amazing talent and sponsorship that's really helped that, that whole industry flourish in China. 
How long were you doing the project at Post? At Post was um, a couple of years, and one of the things, the interesting parts about it is we had to travel around China to explain what this was. And uh-huh. I was taken as the, the foreign expert that would go along with my broken Chinese. And we went to all sorts of far places out in, into China, to Xinjiang, and to spread the word that, okay, now China was digitizing, and now we have name and address databases and things that you can use to start your planning and stuff. So it was a brilliant way to see the country and the far places of it at the same time as do what was a, a great project. Incredible. How was the adoption of the new data infrastructure and capabilities? And was there anything done particularly well or any, any mistakes? And the, the reason why I ask is because I see that in, in so many mm. analytics projects, mm. they're usually when they go well and they get to what sometimes people call completion, is that means that the technical work is done or close to finished, but in terms of the adoption, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah absolutely, it's not something yeah. that gets the amount of love and attention that it should. Yeah, how was that component during this project? Yeah, fantastic. Probably the best example for me is was working on ICBC. All of the banks uh, did a analytics project and started to centralize their data in China. Financial institutions in China were state-based, so the, the group didn't have a lot of power. One of the ways in which they got control over the organizations was bring the data together in the center, and then you can have an effective control over what's going on in, in the thing. And these are large organizations. I'd come from working in Australia at St. George. I thought uh, 2 million clients was a big number. ICBC had 360 million <laughs> And it was just on a completely different scale. And the way they did it was they said, IT said, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I don't care for the business requirement. It's part of the reason why people like me were there, because they got us to tell them this is what the business requirement will be. No involvement from the users whatsoever. So you can imagine the way we're all brought up, right? Yeah. I'm like, guys, this is going to fail. You've got to have business ownership and sponsorship. Otherwise, this is going to not go well. We've seen it all around the world. It's not going to happen. And they said, Tony, you don't really understand what you're saying. (laughs) We know how to do this better. You watch what happens. And so the philosophy was build it and they will come. And they built fabulous data sets, right? And took a multi-year project to design the data models in Chinese and do everything and populate these things. And they were right. At first, it was very slow. I remember telling them, you know, we built this thing. It was millions of dollars worth of project. And we had five users. And I was saying, okay, so here's the thing. I can benchmark all of these other sites around the world. You need more than five. See, they have like 50,000 over here. You have five. And so they worked on that from that time on after building it, slowly adding user after user, department after department until eventually they were right. They did have a very active data culture and I was probably wrong. They probably had the right... Right way of doing it. Well, it depends, you can right? Say. I think you could look Horses at for ways. courses, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And as they were recruiting users, hmm. was there much work that needed to go into the platform, the infrastructure that had been built before? Did it have to evolve as new users came on with different requests, requirements, or was it something that it was sort of flexible enough from the start that it was able to cater for large numbers? They built on, because of the size and the scale, hmm. Um, they built on technology that could go as big as possible. The clients that, that jumped in were the China Telco, China Mobile, Bank of China, China Construction Bank, ICBC. All of these projects went in, in sequence, right? And they all took the top-end technology. They didn't waste any money, didn't save any money on trying not to do it properly. So they built industrial strength 
infrastructure. And today, if you go there, they're multi-layers now with um, open source, uh, some Chinese local stuff involved as well. So I think the infrastructure was fine. It was just about how to get a business culture that was going to use it. And eventually, I think the nice thing is the way it flowed was they got some people starting to use it. Those people got good results. Those people then propagated and very quickly they caught up and they had a business user community that looked more like the Western world. But they kind of jump speeded over everybody. Right. Yeah. It's incredible, right? Yeah, that they were able to do that so successfully. A lot of learnings and a lot of lessons in yeah, in those experiences. It's really great. Tell me what what is in your mind at the moment? What type of things are you thinking about, working on, excited about? What's happening? I think the most important thing for me personally is data ethics yeah. and trust. Privacy by design, trust by design. I think for me as a consumer, I'm horrified at some of the practices in, in our industry. And I think we all knew in the industry that a lot of this stuff happened. Cambridge Analytica was no surprise to anybody that's been in the industry for some time. And a lot of us also understand what the government's been doing with tracking people. And some of us have worked on those projects at various points in time. So we as an industry knew, but I don't think the general population had any idea. The data and analytics people were the first people to put post-it notes over their cameras. Mm-hmm. You could tell, that, oh, he's an analytics person. But look, he's got a post-it note there. <laughs> Now, teenagers will do the same thing. School kids will do the same thing. Everybody knows that actually you've got to be a bit careful. People aren't doing great things with data. Data is important and my privacy is important. So I think adopting practices from the industry point of view that are ethical, that do the right thing and provide people that trust and security, they're going to deal with you as an organization, then you should put the right safeguards in place and make it transparent to people what you're doing. I think that's the the biggest challenge. If we can get that, rebuild the trust, then I think the industry will get another great ride. But if that trust equation is broken, it's going to mean that people no longer share data, they're not willing to provide data anymore, and it will slow our progress down. Very true. So how can this be brought to life? What are some ways that you've been thinking or implementing or testing in terms of how to create maybe an ethical framework? How are you going about bringing this to life? So in AlphaZeta, we've put a lot of energy in trying to work out what are the right principles that you've got to live by. Mm. And I'm also the working at Vault. So in my role at Vault, I'm chief analytics officer, part of the, the founding team there. And we use Vault as the practical showcase of, of what to do and how it should work. So we looked around the world and trying to find who's got guidelines, who's got the principles written down. And there was a lot of committees and a lot of good work being done around the world, but all very much at the theoretical level. And we formed a, a kind of working group of people, a lot of good collaborators, some people collaborating for free because it's a topic of passion. And we built the principles for Vault and have gone ahead and started implementing them at Vault. That's great. And what are some either guiding, overarching guiding principles or some aims or, or standards that you hope to achieve as part of the process? Yeah. The first kind of physical part of, of what it meant is we at Vault, we are subject to a external advisory committee. So I'm chief analytics officer. I'm part of the management team. The advisory committee reports to the board. Yeah. So it's more senior than I am. 
And that mechanism is used to look at our ethics principles, look at our practices, and make sure that we stay on course. They can make recommendations, they can give advice to the board that we should go in or out of various different practices. So I think that keep yourself honest part is a huge thing. Second thing is we practice data minimization. So part of our principles are we're only supposed to be collecting data that we actually need. So one of the first ones that came up. That's, you know, day and night compared to a lot of other yeah. places. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I spent yeah. the first half of my career trying to collect everything. And now I'm finding actually we're working very hard on not collecting it. And so, you know, one of the ones that came up, which is fascinating to me, was gender. Why do we need gender? And we had this debate inside, surely there's a reason we've been collecting mm-hmm. this for so long. Is it because we're going to send pink emails and blue emails? <laughs> no, right? So there was no reason. And then once we decided that, okay, we're going to be a gender-free financial institution, yeah, I think it's cool, right? That a lot of practical problems came. Most software comes with gender. Pretty much everything you have assumes that you're going to collect all this stuff. And then probably the final piece to it was, um, in Australia at least, the under comprehensive credit reporting, you need to report on gender. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. So we had to talk to them and say, hey, look, uh, actually, we're not not going to collect gender. We're not going to have gender. And by the way, why are you collecting it? Have you ever thought, why are you collecting it? And they said, actually, we're not really sure. It's mandatory, but we're not really sure. And it turned out that the way they collect it is you have a choice of marking the file M, F, or you unknown. And they said, you know what? Vault, you're free to mark everybody from now unknown. So when Vault starts its lending program, everyone will be marked unknown. Amazing. And I think that's a great thing. To get gender bias out of credit decisioning, out of the credit bureaus, is a very, very good thing. And also, if you present as a different gender to your birth certificate, you should have that right. Why should a bank need your gender, right? I I can't see any reason why they should. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. So that's another practical outcome from it. And then the other one was just in, in terms of which which of our vendors are sharing data. So at Vault, we have, we have 134 different vendors. We have slightly more vendors than we have staff, actually, which is interesting, right? Yeah. And we have to go through all of those vendors and work out of those vendors we share data with, who's giving data to whom, in which country is it sitting, and under what sovereignty, and a whole lot of work to do that. So that was quite a piece of work as well. Often when we ask people, the vendor themselves weren't entirely sure of what is their data practice. It took some of them quite a lot of energy to go and work out what they were doing with their data and where it was going. Not surprised. Yeah, it's, um, not, it's, just, it's not surprising, but it should, be, it should be under control, right? So true. That is exactly, exactly right. It, yeah. should, be, it should be something that's well-governed and well-policed well and looked after, but it's not. Did you find any surprises maybe any surprises that you can reveal as part of that that process? The area that we were most concerned about in the end, everyone is, uh, of course, PII data is very important. There's a secondary question, though, is I think in financial services, are your detailed transactions, even if my name is removed, Mm. are your detailed transactions important private data? And we've taken the view because Vault is built around analytics and that data is very important to us because it has a lot of stuff in there, not directly, but indirectly. You can see people's medical condition. You can see people's lifestyle. Are they gambling? Are they drinking? What time do they go to bed even? You can see 
out of that data, right? And I think that that data has a lot more private detail in it than most people in the industry. And a lot of that data is made freely available from some of the other banks. They resell that data. And for Vault, that's a, a definite no. It's surprising to me that that data is out there and used by consulting companies and all sorts of things. But I think it's that's private data. And it, even though it's got the name removed, it's still very easy to reverse back and work out who that person was. Yes. And information about them. Like yeah. Their gender, you know, as you were saying, lifestyle. They, they saw Everything is in there. Yeah. Your medical records, all these things you can reverse because you can see what people are spending, where they're going, the hospital bills, pharmacy bills, everything to do with their lifestyle you can see in there. Yeah. And some of these things I don't think should be made public. Correct. It's hmm. such a unique point of view compared to, you know, the rest of the industry. In hmm. both, you're taking that very unique and, and different stance. How has it been getting people on board with this, creating a culture uh, around this? Has it been, have you felt that people are surprised that they feel powered and refreshed or something that they're confused about? How has it been building this? Yeah, team great question. I mean, we were, we were amazingly lucky at Vault. By nature of what Vault is, Vault, the, uh, a lot of people are at Vault because it's the first bank in, in a long time in the country that's come around and it's full of passion for people who want to make the industry better. And particularly in Australia, where, where we've been through a Royal Commission with the banks and so on, they want to fix the industry, right? Yes. Set the right practice. So I think at Vault, it was a unique culture where it was adopted very uniformly across the bank. The board advocates it. They're into making sure that uh, we build the new bank around ethics in total, working with the ethics center. And so the data ethics is a natural part of that. It did come as a surprise to, at first glance, to our, our legal team who were saying, what, you're really going to do this? Yep. And also, of course, to the digital marketing team. They were like, what, no. And so there was a little bit of tuning in those two areas, but the rest of the organization, I uh, think, today, I think one of the biggest advocates is our legal team. They're all over it now. And in marketing, then it's a philosophy. Once you get used to the idea that actually if people don't want you to track them, don't track them. Mm. If you don't need this information, don't collect it. There's still a lot you can do without taking unnecessary data from people. Enormous amount you can do. Such a great principle. Another thing that you said was another sort of big concept that I want to dive into as well was building the bank with analytics at its core <laughs> or from analytics. What type of decisions has that led you to take that were different to what would it be if you didn't have analytics at the core of a bank, if that makes sense? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if I maybe start with the how I got involved with, with Vault. Great. Um, Vault. Uh, Steve Weston is the CEO mm -hmm. and co-founder, and Luke, Luke Bunbury is the other co-founder. And they set out with the idea of it's time in Australia to shake up the industry. It needs competition. It needs a, a new way of doing things. And that was the driver. They call it Ocean's Eleven. The two of them got on the phone and basically got a team of 11 people from the people that they'd worked with around the world that they thought were the right team to start it. So I was uh, the third or fourth person to join the founding team and they already had in their mind that okay we're going to be building a neo bank it's a digital bank it runs on data it wasn't it's not a debate point anymore it's got to be in the foundation so i think the first step was because i was the third person the first phone call from luke bunbury to get involved because data is now important 
maybe if this was a decade ago, the data person wouldn't have been the first or the second people person to call, maybe the 20th, right? right? After yeah. you put the important people in place, doing sales and lending and these sorts of things, and you'd eventually get to the data person. So right from the beginning, that changes things. And then everything from the architecture at Vault was built with this in mind. So it runs, um, the analytics are pushed to the front. Uh, it's a digital bank, everything's going through the phone, it's got to be in real time. The analytics are pushed onto the Kafka stream at the front with a recommendation engine, more like uh, Netflix, Spotify type architecture than a traditional bank. And then we flow to the data warehouse after that. So you've moved the workload up front pre-processing on the live stream, and then you're using the historical data for context and direction to help the tune the decision. So I think that's a little bit different, yes. particularly for a traditional bank where we all grew up on the batch process and loading things. So I think from a management point of view, yes. it was different from the beginning and also from an architectural point of view. And I think another unique thing about Vault is Vault is fully cloud. We have a, a wow. printer and a coffee machine and a Wi-Fi. That's it. Everything else is in the cloud. So uh, it's in Microsoft Azure for the bulk of it. And we also use Salesforce as a great partner of ours, and they're in uh, AWS. So that the bulk of the bank is between AWS and, and Azure in a multi-cloud environment. Fantastic. <laughs> the, the decision of having analytics at, at the core of the bank, did that cause any differences in the structure of the teams, the culture, the hiring of people coming into the organization, the analytics perspective? Did that bring a different lens into that? It may not be that distinctive. I think it's becoming more common. Data and analytics team does not have a central office. The idea is that they need to sit within the businesses. Most of the teams involved have a, an island where they congregate, and data and analytics has we've taken a conscious decision to have them not do that so that it doesn't become a department in its own right. Data and analytics should be part of the organization as a whole. Uh, no matter what role you are, if you're in a digital in a digital company, you need to know something about data and analytics. So the first thing is in an organization design, I guess it has a very minimalist approach to the data and analytics department for that reason, that it's actually the core of the business. And then another unique part of it, I think, is when you do a, a startup, particularly when you're starting a, a, something like a bank, the analytics environment in a bank can be very, very complex. Yes. It's impossible to go and get the entire team that you need, hire them full-time from day one and have a huge army that's going to do this stuff. So that presents another challenge. And thankfully, through AlphaZetta, my other half, we were able to provide that expertise on a as-needed basis to supplement just a very small core team and bring all of the different unique experts in, but for shorter periods of time, to keep the costs more normalized. Great. And when analytics team is distributed, who owns the data infrastructure, the data platforms? Who is responsible for them in that situation? Yeah, so I'm responsible for that. My role as chief analytics officer but physically, it's Paul Fuller at, at Vault, who's the data architect. He owns that infrastructure, and he reports to me. He's part of the skeleton of the data and analytics team. We have um, a great guy, Ampon Tanovich, does the real-time. Paul looks after the data warehousing environment, and basically, they own between them the systems infrastructure. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about AlphaZeta. So AlphaZeta came out of 
I think I'd been working in this industry for a long time. I'd been on big projects with big consulting companies and big vendors. And I noticed that for what it started as a very pure industry where the client and contractors were mostly experts. They worked in this beautifully collaborative environment and it had grown into something completely different where it was about busloads of people, eight project managers on a project, the client in definite conflict all the time. Every time something comes up, it was a change request. The people who were providing the expertise were a small number of the project. And I think the whole equation had gone wrong. So AlphaZeta was an attempt to, hey, let's go back to the basics. Let's try and keep whatever we can for the expert. And without any of that overhead on it, have the genuine expertise, don't have the busload of juniors at the bottom of a tier one consulting pyramid and give them directly to the clients without any of the overhead, without any of the markup. So we have some key philosophies in AlphaZeta. We shouldn't have offices. The reason we shouldn't have offices is somebody has to pay for those. If you've ever been into uh, T1 Consulting, all around the world, they have these amazing offices. I was in one the other day in the, literally the reception area. It was bigger than my house. <laughs> Fabulous coffee served to me while I was waiting and a panoramic view of the entire city. And I think that overhead is unnecessary. It's not needed today. And what it's doing is taking money away from the expert and the price up to the client. If we get rid of all of this, then the client gets a much better price and the experts get a much bigger share of the pie. And that was the philosophy for AlphaZeta. That's great. And did you have that view long before you started the organization? How was the early, I guess, yeah. kickoff yeah. of the organization? How did that so, Actually, yeah, I was super nervous about doing this in the beginning. And so I spent a year or two thinking about it and working out whether or not it would be practical. And so we kicked off with the idea that there would be 20 of us in AlphaZeta and we would all be able to be independent. And we wrote into the concept that AlphaZeta should not own any of the IP of the experts. All the experts should own their own IP. Another huge point of difference? Yeah, something a little bit different, right? But it's important to most of us in the industry, yes. I think, that the IP is really what drives everything. Uh, techniques, uh, these sorts of things are very important. And if you've invented it and you've created it, then we really feel strongly that that should be your right to keep that. So it was built on that thing. Anyway, we started off with a goal of 20 of us. And I think with the, within about two weeks of starting, there was already 40 of us. We thought, okay, it's going to be bigger than we thought. We just put a stretch goal out and said, it'd be great if we got to 100. And then I think by four months uh, with word of mouth, we were already well over 100. And today there's uh, about 700 of us around the world. Did you start with the idea of going global? Actually, we were, I think we were born global. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, you're in the industry, it's a network of people in lots of different countries. A lot of people move around. That's how the, the industry runs. So it was always started as a global thing, not in, oh, we all want to be global scale, but just the nature of the people involved was we were already multinational from day one. And then it's kept spreading from there as people in different countries contact us and say, hey, you know what, we want to join too. Great. And how has the organization evolved over that time from the 20 to the 700? And what type of either projects or initiatives or yeah. areas has it grown? So again, something that I didn't really think would be the case. I thought when we kicked off, I thought we'd have 
I guess you'd call it tier two clients, startups maybe, and organizations below where the tier one consulting organizations couldn't go because of economics. And that, that would be our, our lifeblood. And certainly we do have a bunch of those clients uh, today, which is great. But the, our very first client was GE Aviation Digital out of uh, the US. Wow. Yeah, which is great, right? Uh, we got a lot of support for them. I'm forever grateful. Fantastic group of people. Andy Coleman, who runs that, is a brilliant guy. And their support very early was good. And then we, DBS Bank in Singapore, Swiss Re, Raiffeisen in, in Austria, Volta Course in Australia. Yes. So we have quite a lot of top tier, what you call tier one organizations like to use us as well as the second and that was a surprise as well as this kind of smaller companies and that really was a surprise i didn't think those companies would be willing to take a risk on something like what alpha zeta was because it's a little bit new right it's not no one's going to get in trouble for using mckinsey correct but then being a new a new player yeah it's great it says a lot about the organization the people in them to be getting such clients so thank you yeah really great and could you tell us a little bit about the different, not product lines, but maybe offerings, and the type of things that Alphazeta does and is involved in for different organizations? Are there problems that you like to help or tackle or ways that you can help organizations? You, I know you have some, yeah. an interesting, interesting mix there. <laughs> I'm to ask you about it. So the first piece is analytics consulting. So across engineering to data science, Basically, from a source file to a fully rendered output is what AlphaZeta takes care of in analytics only, just exclusively analytics. The second part came along shortly thereafter was we started the academy, which provides training and support in for data analytics, which is also a fantastic area. And then the third part is we have a incubator, the AlphaZeta incubator. Mm-hmm where we try to work with people who want to get their dream, they're working their, their software, their idea, their small company, they want to get that together. The essential problem is if you're trying to do a startup and you've got a fabulous idea, it's very difficult to distribute. So you really have a choice of, okay, you've got to go out and get VC money or you can go to IBM or a large uh, software vendor who really won't be able to give it the time and attention. So the idea was... We try and encourage people to build their own IP and then AlphaZeta helps be a channel to market for that. So the three things, the solutions, an IP, the academy and the consulting. And do the same principles hold across the three in the sense that the creators of the IP hold the IP and how has that come to life? And I ask because it's a unique perspective, a very different take compared to a traditional consulting company where, in my mind, a consulting company is almost like a vacuum cleaner for IP. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do, right, all the time. They're trying to get the IP, yeah. So how how does it work in the case of Alphazeta across the three areas. Yeah, in the easiest one, I think, to understand is if somebody, and a lot of people in analytics are doing this actually, a lot of people are doing consulting on the side to fund their way while they're building something special in the background. It's a, it's a very common model, right? And I think it, it's super clean. We're straight up 
only value proposition for those guys is we're just going to help you market it. We'll put you up, your brand, your thing. We don't want to own your IP, but we will help give you some global channel to get your message out, which I think is good. So that one's clean. The other one is in our contracts, we put that uh, we don't want to own the IP. It's written into the terms of use of AlphaZeta when you join up through the website and these sorts of things. So we, we just take it out at that layer. And then for we take the same approach with the academy for the training side. We don't believe that it's about AlphaZeta sitting down there and designing courses. What we've done is gone the other way and said, who are the best people out there that have this beautiful IP and training material? And then we bring them into AlphaZeta and help them grow and market it and do it that way. So it turns out to be very practical as well, right? Because there's not a lot of overhead for AlphaZeta to go and recreate all this stuff. And brilliant for somebody who's been providing this training because they get a a platform where they can expand and grow. What surprised you the most about your journey with AlphaZeta? Oh, the people, for sure. Yeah? Yeah. We're super lucky in Australia. Alec Gardner and Eugene Dubasarski are just fabulous as individuals and as part of the community here. And that's similar in many of the places we are. The, we call them managing partners. The, and they do have a partner, physical partner role in AlphaZeta. We, we share the, the ownership of the company, right? This is a fabulous group of people and they create a really good culture. We call it Global Analytics Summit, GAS. And we do it in nice places. So uh, Phuket was the first, uh, sorry, Bali was the first one. Phuket was the second. And we'll go to Boracay in December. And at a community event, we have some of the best speakers from around the world in AlphaZeta who present. And we all get together, beanbags and beach party and this sort of stuff. It's really cool. And the environment and the people involved are fabulous. It's removed of, not the vendors a bad word, but it's removed of a lot of the thinking from the bigger companies. Content is king. The idea is king and it's a celebration of our experiences and sharing when you go away to these things and so definitely it's the people in AlphaZeta that's been a fabulous upside surprise I think the analytics industry in general is full of really good people every time you go to an analytics event we normally all stay around talking for for hours afterwards right and it's to get a community like that which feels like that is great brilliant amazing mm. that's incredible had you been involved in early stage companies before Bolt and AlphaZeta? Yeah, I had a a mix of big companies and a couple of small ones. So the first one was an adventure travel company in London and we had a VC involved and we bought up some smaller adventure travel companies. And these did fabulous trips like that. We did one of the first people to go to Antarctica, Russian boat uh, that we refitted and And sent that down to Antarctica was brilliant. Trips into Nepal and climbing uh, mountains and everything. So really good adventure travel stuff because my other passion was travel, right? But in the end, that was um, kind of a victim of the dot-com bubble and burst. Not that it was a dot-com, but that impacted all of the VC money at the time and the whole money dried up. And so I learned a lot from that, right? It's better to not be dependent on that, on the frothiness of those sorts of things. As soon as global financial crisis comes or dot-com bubble or whatever is coming next, then you are suddenly at somebody else's mercy. So I learned a lot from that. And the second one was um, also quite interesting was the idea was to buy up villas all around Asia. You had Asia becoming rapidly more wealthy and polluted. 
And so where is the clean air and the green in Asia? And buy some property around there. And that one also, in the end, went well for a while, was a victim of the global financial crisis. That uh, liquidity instantly went to zero. Yeah. That's exactly why I wanted to, why I asked you that question, to hear about both the journey, but also the lessons that you got from those previous businesses. Mm. Besides the consciousness on the capital side, what were some of the other lessons that you got during those times that have helped you with your current ventures with Vault, with Alpha Zeta? And I ask because one of the many things, but one of the many things that I like about what you're doing today about the two sides is that it's a unique twist and it's very conscious, it's very deliberate, it's against the tide, which is always difficult, especially at first. Was that type of initiative something that was part of your thinking or maybe part of your DNA early on or before these two companies? Mostly it comes, I think, from the other people I've worked with. And again, I owe a lot to, I think, the analytics industry. It's a funny nature of what the work actually looks like. I like project work, right? That's why I was in China and all these places. On a project, you have usually an amazing and diverse collection of people doing an analytics project, everything from uh, pure IT and hardware people to maths people to data nerds, business people, right? You have this weird potpourri of skills that go on projects together, go and build stuff. And I think through that experience, I've learned that actually mostly what makes these things really good and really successful is the people that are on it themselves and what they're thinking and what they're trying to do. And I learned a lot from that growing up in that environment and learning from people who were teaching me that actually, you know, it's very important how you put a team together, what that looks like. If you want to go and do a good project, you need the right people with the right ethos. So I think those people that, that taught me over the years and those projects have just burnt it into the way you work, right? That that part of it is very important. You must have that bit solid from the beginning. And Vault, Vault is exactly the same. I think the, it's all about the people there, what they believe in and what they're trying to do, as much as it is the nature of the business itself. When you bring people, competent, capable people together, sometimes there's differences in approaches or perspectives that get debated before there's a decision and a commitment as an organization? Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that process. Maybe it was stronger earlier on as you were setting it up. Maybe it's something that happens still now. Yeah. What does that process look like in either organization when you have founding members, long career trajectory, very skilled, very competent, a lot of experience, I'm sure often very valid points on both sides, sometimes several sides of the argument, very valid points. What does it look like when you go from that to a single common direction that the organization commits behind? Yeah. What, what happens in between? And I think all of us in analytics, I think it's, we're pretty famous for all having uh, sometimes deeply religious views on what should be done in which way and how you should do it and which philosophy is right. So it's a common to have those um, debates, let's call them. Yeah. And I think that's really healthy. So part of that is because we're in analytics and all of us are practitioners. That is just part of the culture of what you get. So we're used to, I guess, those sorts of arguments, debates, whatever you like to call it, naturally on the one hand. And I also think it's a healthy thing. You want to be able to have conversations like that. I learned a lot as well 
from Steve Weston at Vault. He's always uh, talking about the ability to have open and honest conversations, which means, you know, the ability to take completely different positions on something and have it out. And I think that's a, a really good thing. But as analytics people, we grew up with that, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. We love it. What is your vision for your two companies now if you could go in any order that you want but what would you like to see it either become work towards be known for what would you say that the vision is for each of them yeah i think uh, we'll start with alpha zeta from all of us in alpha zeta we'd like it to represent the kind of quality end of analytics for consulting if you really want to go to find the people that, that are the actual practitioners then alpha zeta should be the place you come to that would be our dream if that's what we were known for for training for the cool new toys that are coming in ip and most importantly for the people and the experts and if we were known for that and also being open and a bit more honest than most consulting companies that would be a brilliant outcome it's not really a size, goal, a spread of countries or anything, but just to be known for that would be fabulous. And then on the for Vault, what really was started with the idea is the industry in, in Australia really could do with some new competition, could do with people doing it a different way, built on a different foundation. So I think Vault's aspiration is it really wants to make positive change in the Australian banking industry, as well as its financial goals and growth. If you look at Monzo, N26, uh, Revolut, the, the neo banks, the digital banks uh, that sprung up in Europe and also in LATAM, UBank and these places, these sorts of things, they've been fabulously successful in their ability to grow, get customer traction and grow. So, of course, uh, Vault also has its eyes on that. But if we, we should be able, the idea is we will only get that if we are trustworthy, if we present a genuine alternative. So it puts even more pressure on Vault to try and do the right thing, be different, and do that in a way that people can understand it so that it, it can grow. That is great. How about same question for you personally. What would you like to either be known for, what would you like to be known for, or what would you like to have as a summary or overview of your career? Obviously, you're in the peak, right? Or maybe from my perspective, the, the things that you're doing is just fantastic. And, and obviously, you have a long way to go. But if you put yourself, say, at the end, towards the end, and you look back, what would you like to be known for to have as the summary of your career? Well, that's a really big question. I, I don't know. I haven't, I've never really thought about it. Yeah. It's more a day-to-day -day rush to do the things that you're involved in, right? Yes. I don't have a, a kind of stretch goal for myself at all. That's so right. I think just to, to get through the projects and things that you've got on at any one point in time is more than enough for me at the yes. moment. Yes, And so. what drives you to deliver those projects or to choose those projects? It just They're the right things to do. And uh, I was lucky enough. I still count as one of the, the luckiest moments for me was I was in Singapore and sitting with a friend of mine who also ended up helping Vault a lot, a guy called Mark Radford, partner in Alpha Zeta. And we were having a chicken and a beer in a chicken shop in Singapore when I got a text from the guys at Vault and it just said, hey, we're thinking of starting a bank. Are you in? And I remember looking at <laughs> <it> and thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, sure. And so I replied back and said, look, if you're in, I'm in. 
and <laughs> sent back and, and thought that's a joke, right? But when I went down and sat with them, that's exactly what we could do. And they changed the regulations in the country to make it possible for what I would consider normal people to have a go at these things and try and do it in a different way. So I think it's just, those things are just pure luck. They weren't, I was just very, very lucky to be invited is the way I look at it. No, that's well, well said, but also no, very well deserved. It's, um, you know, they say that opportunity is hard work and luck in the sense of there's obviously a huge career trajectory, reputation, knowledge that has been built over many years in order to get to that point. So I think it's extremely, extremely well deserved. Thank you. I've always thought it's because I, I just hang out with good people. This is why it works. <laughs> also a good skill, but no, 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 definitely not the only one. Let's change tack. And I wanted to ask you some questions about what might be either coming in the industry or happening in the industry. First one, what do you think are our current and or future challenges in the industry? Yeah, definitely, I think the biggest challenge is the trust issue. How do you use data in a way in which people are going to be happy with that? People are going to see it as a, as a good part of their life and not a bad part of their life. If we don't get that equation right, then I think it's going to be a fundamentally bad turn for the industry. And the second one is probably the more popular debate point around uh, where are we going to go with AI? At what point do we feel secure enough as experts even, to make sure that it's controllable, it's under control, it's not going to cause problems. Fabulous. You can teach a chatbot to, within 30 seconds, to take a wrong turn and become racist or whatever, right? It's very easy to do. Uh, we all know this. How do we get it so that AI can do what it should do, the benefits that it can produce, but do so in a, in a responsible way, right? I think that's a challenge. Well beyond me. I don't know how you, how you put him place safeguards. I'm not for legislation for these things, um, but I think it is it is a challenge and how greater minds than mine will tackle it. But those two things, so on the one side, trust, because the data about people uh, is very, very useful and very can do a lot of good with it, but that trust needs to be there. And then secondly, how do you control the capability that we're racing towards? Amazing points. And I think that even in combination, they can provide options for people that they haven't really seen or felt before. Mm. So I think that in the world, people don't want their, their data to be misused and for them to be a, as a result of their, of their data or being yeah. manipulated. But they also haven't seen an option. And that's yeah. what you, I think you're There's describing. A, yeah. yeah. I need to give a shout out to a guy called Nathan Kinch in, in Melbourne. Fabulous about the whole disclosure process and how you build trust in it. And I think Part of it is it's okay if you're going to do bad, so-called bad things with people's data. If you give away a free thing on the basis that you're going to resell data and use data and stuff, that's good, right? Provided you tell people that this is what's going to happen. It's free, but you know what? It's free because you're the product. I'm going to take your data and we're going to sell it to other people and we're going to use it for other purposes. And actually, that's how we're paying for this service. As long as that's clear, I think it's good. On the other side, though, if you're not under the impression that this is a free service and you're taking my data, then it should also be clear the other way around. Here is a safe place to put your data because we're not going to do this and that and the other. The idea that you gave some disclosure, you know, the I agree, check a box. I just don't 
think it's even a legal document to me because nobody's read it. It could say anything and things are hidden inside it. There's got to be a better digital way to let people know what they're signing up without getting in their way. And again, a shout out to Nathan Kinch, who's done a lot of work in this space so that you can disclose without getting in people's way. You can make the right disclosure in a digital environment when you're signing up for stuff so that people are roughly aware of what they're getting themselves into. And I think that that's a huge area in its own. Huge area and very necessary. Mm. Uh, really well done. With everything that you've done in your career, so many impressive stories, um, what are you most proud of? Um, outside of my family, of course, because I'm most proud of that. Yes. yes. <laughs> Good man. I'm just honestly just proud to be a part of um, all of the different projects. I still keep in touch with most of the people that I worked with, even right back to when I started at, at St. George. We're still in touch, and I've worked with those people many times, again, at different times over over the years. At Vault, there's a couple of people that worked with me way back in my first job at St. George when they first started that process, and I think that's the bit I'm proud of. It's the friends and the projects and the relationships that, that you build up through the analytics industry is a really cool thing. It stays, stays with you for life, right? Amazing. It's a lovely thing. Great. And it's a great philosophy and perspective. I only have one last question for you, Tony. This has been yep. amazing. What is a piece of advice that you would like to give the listeners? Maybe something that can help them in their career or personal life, a perspective, maybe a guiding principle. What What is a, a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Yeah. Maybe the first one is um, going right back to my thing of trying to travel around the world without money is actually if you want to go and start something and do something, money is an important thing. It's not very good to be idealistic without having a proper means of generating. So if you're starting a startup or if um, you want to go independent consulting, it's definitely a path that can be done. It's definitely a path that works but make sure that you do it in a way that you can get projects and you can do stuff. You have to be realistic. I think that's a, a good thing. And at times, maybe I've been too idealistic in my past. You've got to also be a bit pragmatic, right? And then the second thing, probably, it comes down to the people and the opportunities. Most of the good stuff that's come in our industry, you know, if you go right back to start of SAS and Dr. Goodnight and stuff, these things are all built out of projects. Get on good projects, wherever they might be. Through projects are fabulous people, lots of ideas, and normally, at least in my experience, and a lot of the good stuff that gets invented, it comes off the project floors, and these are this is where the action is. So search by project. Look for organizations and places that might have a good project, and if you're lucky enough to get on one, put up with all of the, the hassle and the pain of them, because um, to me, this is the lifeblood, right? It's where the, the good people are, it's where the good ideas are. Amazing. And that is a fantastic note to end on. Tony, thank you so much thank for you. sharing your, your journey, your wisdom, your perspectives. It's the unique propositions that you're bringing into the world. It's been really inspirational. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. 
www.ai.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.